So, please turn to Romans chapter 7. You can take your mask off. There I go. Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, Christ speaks to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But the husband dies. She is released from the law of the husband. So then, while her husband lives, she marries another man. She will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet, but sin, taking opportunity by commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. If I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity 
to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that, with a mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with a flesh, the law of sin. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that shows us the relationship between the law and sin and how we are to live our lives in light of that. I pray that we would listen carefully to a message today, for this is a very difficult passage, but one that I believe we all need to pay attention to. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 7. Try to get the whole chapter. Benjamin, Benjamin Schreiber is very much alive. That didn't stop him from arguing that he died four years ago. He's a convicted murderer. He collapsed in his prison cell. And doctors restarted his heart five times. He recovered back at the Iowa State Penitentiary and he filed a novel legal appeal. He claimed that because he died before he was resuscitated, he had technically fulfilled his life sentence when his heart stopped. He filed for post-conviction relief, claiming that he was being held in prison illegally. The judges, of course, aren't buying it. A district court judge wasn't convinced by that creative attempt to find the loophole in the law said that Schreiber's attempt was unpersuasive and without merit. Quote. The fact that Schreiber was able to file a legal motion petitioning for his release, the judge added, in itself confirms the petitioner's current status as living. Dying for a brief amount of time doesn't amount to get a get-out-of-jail-free card, does it? And the Iowa Court of Appeals said that this 66-year-old will remain in prison until a medical examiner determines that he is dead for good. Judge Amanda Parfield wrote, Schreiber is either alive, in which case he must remain in prison, or he is dead, in which case this appeal is moot. Noting they couldn't find any case law that would go that would back his, uh, his position, the appeals court judge ruled he couldn't have it both ways, claiming to be as dead as far as the criminal justice system was concerned, while simultaneously going on with his life. Pretty creative legal claim, right? It was no help to that particular convicted criminal. He was bound by the law as long as he lived. In contrast, however, this is the certain hope of every believer. We are connected in a living way with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We saw that in chapter 6 last week. We're dead and free forever from the condemnation, the sentencing of our unrighteous law-breaking. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. Colossians 3.3. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. And here in Romans 7.4, Therefore, my brothers, you also die to the law through the body of Christ. So that's what's led us to chapter 7. That's where we're at this morning. 
I give you a reminder of the big picture here of Romans really quickly. Romans, written to Jews and Gentiles by Paul, they're having culture wars in their church with each other. They're suspicious of each other. They're looking down at each other in their house churches in Rome. And Paul's writing so that they are transformed by the gospel, the saving power of the crucified, risen, reigning, and returning king. And transformed into humble and sacrificing and passionate servant missionaries of Christ, when you read chapters 12 through 16, who partner together as a family in Christ's mission to make disciples of all nations. And specifically, partnering with Paul and his desire to plant churches in untouched Spain in chapter 15 for God's glory. Now these chapters, chapter 5 through 8 of Romans, really hinge around a key statement in chapter 5, 20 and 21. So if you understand chapter 5, 20 and 21, the rest of the book, is, the rest of chapters 5 through 8 is going to make a lot more sense. Paul said in verse 20 of chapter 5, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as Christ has reigned, excuse me, therefore as, that as sin has reigned to death, even so might grace reign through righteousness to eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And it led us into chapter 6 verse 1 last week. What? So grace is abounding. It covers sin. So we should sin. So grace abounds. And Paul says, no way. You missed it. Let me explain. Let me say that again. And so he lays out what it lit, what it means to have a life centered in Christ, a life that is 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 driven, stakes deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation, salvation is a unity. You, at your point of conversion, became a Christian once and for all on the basis of the once and for all finished work of Christ through faith. To benefit of the gospel that we call justification. God sees you as his son, perfectly righteous. And then there's a life that comes out of that after, isn't there? When you got saved, God, God didn't say, alright, now let's take you back, let's take you up to heaven. He gives you the rest of your life here to grow in becoming more and more like what he saved you for. And he's going to finish that completely in heaven. So the Christian life then, sanctification, also operates on that same basis, but now moment by moment. The same base, Christ's finished work, and the same instrument, faith. True of your salvation, once and for all, true of your sanctification, growing in Christ, moment by moment. The only difference is that one is one for all. The other is moment by moment. The gospel transforms us. But how? Well, Paul writes Romans chapter 7 to dramatically illustrate what happens if you seek the sanctification, the moment by moment, apart from the Spirit through the law of God. No matter who you are, if you seek your sanctification through your own power, it will slay you. Paul had already proven justification, salvation, at the point of conversion, through the law is impossible in chapter 3. 
And now he's going to prove that same thing with sanctification, growing in Christ. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the similarities here? All right, chapter 6, we, he's writing to a church that probably, if it reflected the Roman Empire, was 40% slaves. Two of every five in those rooms would have been slaves. And uh, we, 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 we talked about how imagine... Um, if you had been rescued by uh, like the, the, the SEAL Team 6 here being held hostage, and then you would say, you know what, I want to go be, be held hostage again so they can rescue me again. That was, that was great. How foolish that would be. It wouldn't make sense. No, you've been rescued and set free. right? The enemy's been put down here. And then we saw in chapter 6 the union that we have in Christ. We're united. We're in Christ. That God sees us. As, 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 as just like his son, so that our lives are united with Christ's death and burial and resurrection. The old you died with Christ, nailed him to the cross. The new you in the spirit is raised with Christ in his resurrection. And then we uh, looked at the responsibility that we have uh, to, uh, to present our bodies, to surrender, to yield to the Lord as our new master. Rather than yielding to the master of sin. I gave you an illustration here of a castle. A castle. There's a battlefield going on here. In Romans 6, 12 through 14, Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Either yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness of sin, but yield yourselves to God and those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. So there's this great conflict, this battleground going on. And there's a kingly throne, or a reign. There's a battle for the throne. And verse 12 says, don't let sin reign. There's a reign that's, that's being contested here in this passage. A throne. Reign is, 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 is simply the Greek verb form of the word king. And gain the throne, and you are called to resist. But what's the castle? This castle that's under attack by the challenger to the throne is your body. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And then there's servants in this castle who may become deceptive secret agents of the rebel leader. And because they're insiders, they can use their role to seduce and capture parts of the castle. And those servants are what? Anybody remember from last time? In the passage, what are the servants? What are the things that are, that are, that are used to, to uh, enact mutiny against the throne? Your what? Your lusts, your desires, your desires. Desires in and of themselves aren't wrong. But when they're captured by sin, then they are wrong. And Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. That word desires could, could be any good desire or it could be in the context of a bad desire. Um, but not if the rebel sin doesn't capture them. And so there is a surrendering that can happen in a negative way to sin. That's what the word obey signals in verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And so sin, it's a leader of this revolt. It takes, wants to take some desire captive and send it in behind the castle walls 
with its deceptive promise that you'll be free and immune and there'll be some kind of reward. And obedience to that desire would be surrendering that castle over. Paul also indicates that there's weapons in this castle that those servants can use. And they can be used the enemy or they can be used against the rightful king. And these, these weapons here can be used by the enemy for unrighteous purposes. And these weapons are the parts of your bodies, the members here. Your eyes, your ears, your tongues, your hands, your feet, your sexual organs. And verse 13 says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. And he uses the word hopla. For you and I. It's God. Verse 13b. He tells them not to surrender their members of their body to sin, the rebel can enter the throne, so they can make them members of uh, weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to who? To God. To the king. And your members as weapons of what? Righteousness to God. The true king is God. Sin is the rebel and the insurrectionist. You're going to see that again in seven here in a second. Stay loyal to the king with all your weapons and all your servants, your desires, and your bodily members. They're not under law, but you are under the grace of the king. And so that's the situation Paul describes, this, this, this conflict here. Which leads us to chapter 7. And so the end of chapter 6, chapters, remember there's no chapter dividers in the original languages here. It continues a flow of thought here. And so in chapter 6, he, he said, What fruit? Uh, when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Be this question in your mind. Well, okay, what about the law? What about the law of God, especially for a Jewish believer, right? Raised in the Torah, the law. Even if by the age of five, a young boy would have memorized significant parts of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Paul's going to say, your sanctification is not by the way of Torah, the law, but by the way of grace through the Spirit. And so, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Paul's going Paul's to say you've died through the law, through the body of Christ. Um, uh, you, are, you, you, you are now in the new life of the Spirit. Chapter 7, verse 6. An amazing thing to say for a Jew who grew up uh, obeying the law, which was good in and of itself. He's going to show that. The first thing we need to see in verses 1 through 6 is this. We die to the power of the law's sentencing. The law gave us a death sentence. We die to the influence, the power, the authority of that sentencing since we are in Christ and Christ died as our sentencing, our substitute. That's what he's saying in verses 1 through 6. He gives the illustration of marriage here. And so he's saying, okay, when a woman marries for life, right? The law binds her to her husband as long as her husband's alive. But if that husband dies, those laws of marriage, she is free from that marriage. So while her husband's alive, she ran off, she would be committing adultery. But if her husband dies, he's then free from that law, and she's 
does not commit adultery if she would remarry. And so his point is this. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. He fulfilled the sentencing. And now, you're united to the one who was raised from the dead. And as a result, look at verse 4. As a result, even to him that is raised from the dead, that you should bring forth fruit to God. So there's a new way through life in the Spirit, through grace. You see, in verse 5, he's saying, when we're controlled by our old nature, sinful desires are at work in us. And the law aroused those evil desires and produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But here's his point in verse 6. But now, we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve, here it goes, in newness of spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit rule in your life. And not in the oldness of the letter of the law. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, the new covenant. So there's the point. We died the power of law sentencing. Since we're in Christ, when Christ died, we died with Christ. Christ died as our sentencing. When Christ was condemned to the cross, he took our condemnation. There is therefore now, 8-1, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. We died to the power of the law of sentencing. The evil one cannot say, he is guilty. God does not look at us in Christ as guilty. He sees us as righteous. We have, we're free from that uh, condemnation of the law. You know, Paul, over the principalities and powers... There's the victory of Christ. Usually when a king of the Jews, Jesus blotted out those handwriting ordinances against us. In other words, when Jesus died, what was really going on was the writing of ordinances against you. God's law. Fail, 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 fail. And Jesus wiped that with his blood. He took that for us. And that's what Paul's saying in verses 1 through 6. Now in verses 7 through 13, Paul's going to uh, assume that they're going to think, well, the law must be really bad. Christ had to free us from the law, and he's going to say, no, the law of God in, in and of itself is good. It's from God. It's from God. How could it be bad? And it shows sin. Remember on the Wizard of Oz there when they go to the wizard and all the smoke and lightning and effects and, and Toto runs and behind the curtain, and they pull back the curtain, and there's a wizard pushing all the buttons here. Paul's going to pull the curtain back and say, here's the problem. It's not the law. Remember on Scooby-Doo? Whenever they caught the guy who was the monster, the ghost, they pulled off the mask, and they're like, oh, that's Mr. Bob, the barber, or whatever, right? Yeah. He's going to pull back the curtain. He's going to say, this is, this is the problem. This, this is the real imposter here. And so he's going to say, the law is good because it shows sin. And he's going to give an example. How many commandments are there? Ten commandments, right? What is a tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. That's a commandment that has to do with the heart, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, right? Thou shalt not covet. That goes deeper, doesn't it? 
Of course, Jesus interpreted the law in Matthew 7, uh, 5 through 7 to show that it is deeper here. But thou shalt not covet. The tenth commandment. It's the heart issue one. Imagine. Hot, fresh chocolate chip cookies. Probably not thinking chocolate chip cookies this time of day. But hot, fresh chocolate chip cookies on the counter in the kitchen. Kids. And you want them. Mom says no. You can't have them. And actually, when you walked in the house, you smelled something, but you didn't know they were on the counter. But the fact that she says, no, you can't have one, now you really want one. Now, if you obey mom, you would have done good, right? Done right. But sin wants to take hold of you there, right? It wants to infiltrate and treason and hijack and destroy. And now the only thing you're going to be able to think about is that hot, fresh, steaming chocolate chip cookie and a nice full glass of milk. Sin. You think of it in the ordinary sense of, of human wrongdoing against God. It's, it, it, it's like, remember remember color slides? Remember the slides? You'd shine the light through, open the wall, and then you'd see the slide. Right? The missionaries come and they would show slides, and it was like the Discovery Channel for Christian kids. It was, it was amazing. Um, so you shine the light through the slide. Or a photograph, or a piece of piece of piece of film by itself. You could, you could, you, if if you looked at that slide, it was really hard to see, right? Really hard to see. You had to hold it up to the light to see it. You had to put a bright light behind it and a big screen in front of it. That's kind of like the law. Sin's like that slide, and the law shines its light through that sin. It draws attention to the sin. But the law can do nothing to take care of that sin. By itself, the law is powerless to do anything about stopping it. So it reveals sin, it shows sin. And so he says in verses 7 through 13, that the law, am I saying the law is sinful? Of course not. There's a law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong. I'm blind. But the law said, thou shalt not covet. It showed me that. But when it said that, now I want to covet. Is what he's saying in verse 8. And he's saying, with the law, the law kind of intensifies sin's power because it shows what's wrong in my heart. So, in verse 10 he said, I discovered the law's command. It's supposed to bring life and brought spiritual death instead. The law is good. The problem is sin's bad and sin's in me. That's the problem he's saying. And it used the commands here. I'm condemned. I'm sentenced. But he says in verse 12, but I want you to hear this, he says in verse 12, the law is holy. The command is holy and just and good. Imagine a criminal being sentenced. For their sin, right? Because the criminal is sentenced for their sin, does that did that make the law bad? Did that make the one who sentenced them, the judge, unjust because he sentenced them for their sin? No. A just judge is not bad for sentencing sin. That's what makes him just, righteous, right? The law is not bad for showing you are for showing you're a lawbreaker because it's from God and God's good. It reveals what does the law reveal? It reveals God's goodness. His perfection, his desire for man to walk in the light and not death. That's what he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy. These things are for your life. 
for your blessing. Verse Psalm 19, David says, it talks about um, the law. It's how it's good. It converts the soul. It, 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 there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a goodness to it. Sweeter also than honey. And in verse 16, later on in chapter 7, he says, if, I, if, uh, if, uh, if then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. It is good. You can think about it like this. There's a guy who planted a garden. And he was pretty excited when stuff started shooting up. And every day he watered and he weeded and his garden grew. And he was ecstatic to see what his plants would produce. But a few days later, he must have lived in Maine because he went to his garden. And there was all kinds of hungry rodents and rabbits that had raided his crop. Probably some deer. So he puts up a fence. And a few days later, he goes to his garden and he sees the same thing. Even though he put up a fence. So he put up another fence. And then he put up another, and another. And every time he checked, he found these vermin had raided the garden. And finally he realized critters could go over, or through, or under each fence. So he dug down deep, and built a brick wall, a deep concrete foundation. And weeks later, he climbs this tall garden wall. Goes into the garden, and he's horrified to find that it's choked with weeds, the ground is cracked, the plants wilted, and worst of all, his crops gone. Because he was trusting in the wall's protection and he'd forgotten to tend the garden. And he failed to realize that that high wall had also blocked the sun's rays. And he'd overlooked the greatest threat in his garden, the animals that had been inside the wall the whole time. That's the problem. And how many of us can trust in similar walls like that, right? Yeah, sure, it's great to have boundaries. But good grief, you can't rely on those things. They may even lead you right into sin you're open to avoid. That's what happened to Galatians. We have boundaries in God's law. God's law is good. It cannot save us. It can't transform us. The problem is, he's going to say in verses 14 through 25, is my problem, number three, is sin ruining you. That's my problem. Not God's law. God's law just shows the problem. That's my problem. My problem is sin ruling me. And so here's what he's going to say in verses 14 through 25. The trouble's not the law. The law is spiritual. It's good. The trouble's me. I'm human. I'm a slave to sin. And then he's going to go through those famous verses. In chapter 7, right? Things I want to do, I don't end up doing. Life without the Spirit. The things I do, I don't want to do. I know they're wrong. Life without the Spirit. He says, I discover this principle of life. That's what happens. It's, there's this paradox, this irony here. And then in verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin, which is in my members, my body. That's the problem. It's inside. The rodents are inside. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is what life, not surrendered to the Spirit, life without the Spirit, the rule of grace looks Theologians have debated for centuries, is he talking about a believer, is he talking about an unbeliever here, and I don't think that's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is this is life without the Spirit, the surrendering to the Spirit. 
the presenting your members as instruments of righteousness. And so what is his hope? What's his hope? Look at verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For what? Implied in the last verse before. For the deliverance. For rescue. Deliver is, in, is the idea of salvation. Rescue. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's what he says. The answer is in Jesus, Messiah King, our Lord. And he says, to sum up what I'm saying, this is how it's been. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And what he needs to, what he needs the Romans to understand is this. That Christ's risen victory sent me the Spirit. When God gave the Torah to Moses, his intention for that was to further his purposes for Israel, right? So the nations would see what a life under what life under God looked like. But obviously the Torah was not enough because he sent his son, and then his son sent his spirit to do what the Torah, the desire of the Torah, the law was designed to do, but by itself could not. And it's at this point that we come to perhaps one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Romans chapter 8. Christ's risen victory sent through the Spirit. That's the answer to all of this. So, just to rehash from chapter 7. Law's good. Problem's me and sin. Answer Holy Spirit. Chapter 8. So Paul will say there's no condemnation now for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That sentencing was taken with Jesus on the cross. And you belong to him. And this power of the life-giving spirit has liberated you, freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses couldn't save us. So God did what the law could not do. Save us. And he sent his son in a body like the bodies we have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be satisfied. For us, who no longer need to follow our sinful nature, we've been free, but instead follow the Spirit. The answer is the Spirit. So as you hear this and you grasp it and you recognize your battle in this passage, we're going to get to it in chapter 8. But the answer to your struggle is the Spirit in you. You say, well, how does that work? That just sounds so general, so vague, ambiguous. Holy Spirit, I've heard that all my life. How does that work? I'm glad you asked. Because I want you to come back next week. He's going to tell you about the dynamics of how the Holy Spirit is at work in you. He's going to repeat some of the concepts, because we're slow to get it, in chapter 6. He's going to repeat some of the concepts, but he's going to be saturated with the power of the Holy Spirit. There's freedom. So in your temptation... This week, 
and you're falling to temptations this week, if and when that happens, you never had to choose that. The Holy Spirit was there all along, living inside you. He's given you a new operating system. He's planted you in new soil. He empowers you to walk in new life, to say no to sin, and to say yes to God. There's a power in the Spirit. I'm kind of going to leave you hanging here a little bit here. Because Paul does. He wants to get into it. He wants to show you the dynamics because he wants to see transformed lives by the power of the gospel. Let's close in prayer. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Perhaps some of you are saying, I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I have not trusted alone in his sentencing on my behalf. And today is the day where you would say, Pastor, I'm to the point where I'm done rejecting and fighting. And today, understanding that I am the wretched man or woman that I am, I need the deliverance of Christ Jesus our Lord. I wonder if that reflects anybody here this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their new master. If that's you, I'd like you to lift your hand and I'd like to pray for you here this morning and engage in further conversation to show you from the Word of God how you can know that you are not under the condemnation of God that you currently stand in. But can be alive to God power of the cross and resurrection of Christ. This morning, believers, do you see how it is? Do you feel that struggle, that frustration? What is it that the law of God has shown to be your consistent struggle? Are you going to enact the resources by faith that God has given you because Scripture says He's given you all you need that pertain to life and godliness. Or are you going to try, try it again in your own power and run right into the wall again, trip right over the roof, smash your face in again? Friends, <laughs> this is why we need the gospel. We don't need this. We can go to any other church, right? It's saturated in the U.S. and dead religion, but God's given us a living word to get active in our lives. Let's pray.